Today's podcast is sponsored by the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology, coming soon to Grand Rapids and Philadelphia. Listen for more at the end of the program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. So glad you joined us today. My name is Todd Pruitt, and I'm pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Carl Truman, who is professor at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania. Carl, good to see you. Good to be with you, as always, Carl. It's it's great to be here, Todd, and it's, I suppose it's sort of good to be with you as uh, <laughs> nothing better to do today. So, Well, I, you know, I thought I would tee that one up for you, give you a softball today, you know, say something like that. Anything so. I can do to help the, the cultural desert that is mm. the United States of America, I will do it. And, and I, being here I, for you, brother, it's, I see it as a sacrificial service. On, I appreciate on my that. Yes, I appreciate that. All God's people did say amen to that. Amen. So, Amen. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, we, we're going to talk about just a really light, inconsequential topic uh, today, you know, uh, the existence of evil and how do we explain that. So, um, obviously, this is a subject that, as a pastor, I get questions about all the time, and it's obvious why we're asked about this all the time. Carl, I know you, you served as a pastor for a time, and now you're a professor. Clearly, this is a, a topic that we both um, have to wrestle with. It's, in it's our big world. among students. I would say Absolutely. every year I probably have half a dozen students passing through my office mm. asking about the problem of evil. It's Absolutely. it's something that presses on human consciousness perennially. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. And that's why we uh, we have the guest we're having today. His name is Scott uh, Christensen, and uh, he's associate pastor at Kerrville Bible Church in Kerrville, Texas. Now I was just talking to Scott. Um, a moment ago, and I, I, I used to go to Kerrville every year when I was a kid to a campground there uh, with, with our, our church group, and it's always a pleasure to talk to anyone who's living in Texas because it's the one bastion of sanity um, in the United States. Scott, wouldn't you agree? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so I, I, was, I was actually getting a word in with Scott. Since I'm a native Texan, if they do make the decision to secede, um, I'm pretty sure I'll get to come and bring my family with me. Carl will be excluded without any, I, I mean, I'll make sure he's not a part of it. It would, put it this way, that would not hurt me to any significant degree. <laughs> I've been to Texas. It's flat. It's dusty. Oh, my it's, goodness. It's it's just you, like the rest of America, only what, drier. You know, this have you just been to Amarillo or something? Come on. I've Carl. been to Amarillo. I've been to Dallas. Yeah, it's, oh, Texas is, yeah, you know, it's just big. It's just big. I mean, well, Scott, I apologize. First of all, Scott, I apologize. Uh, he hasn't my, been to Hill Country coast. yet. Exactly. Exactly. He has to go to the Hill Country in Kerrville. So. And, and there's well, Scott, actually mountains in the southwest part of Texas uh, that are pretty, uh, pretty massive. Yeah. There are some large mountains. I, I have been to a Willie Nelson concert at Billy, <laughs> at Billy Bob's in Fort Worth, and I was wearing cowboy boots and a Stetson. 
Okay, that's pretty impressive. So I, I have the gear. I can pass as a native. To, to be in Fort oh, Worth, I would to see Willie Nelson, another question, but, to uh, see Will and Nelson live in Fort Worth, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah, I've got to say. Okay, do you think okay. Texas is an example of the theodicy problem? Yeah, you know, how could a god of love allow <laughs> well, Texas? <laughs> well, how about we do this? Uh, Scott, our our guest, Scott Christensen, has um, written a, a really marvelous book. Um, it's entitled "What About Evil: A Defense of God's Sovereign Glory," and what struck me the very first time I saw um, the title of the book, and and I think it was on Amazon where I saw it come up, was the sheer number of heavyweights that have endorsed this book. I mean, mean, just the list of endorsers, Scott, is almost a full chapter. I mean, it's pretty pretty (laughs) impressive. But but, but in all seriousness, um, as I've worked my way through the book, it's well worth reading. It is a thick book. But I would encourage our readers to not let that, not let that frighten them off. I, I think a thick book is called for. I think some smaller treatments are helpful on this subject, but you really seek to, to give a pretty comprehensive treatment on this. There is a subject. nice glossary as well. So it's, yes. even though it's dealing with deep material, the, it's, mm-hmm. it's very user-friendly from it that is. perspective. It is. There are discussion questions. There's prayer. There's... It, it, it's it's clearly a book that's written by a pastor who wants people not only to get the information in their head, but to really grapple with this in in the deepest part of who they are. So, Scott, first of all, thanks for for writing the book, and and secondly, why did you write the book? Um, yeah, that's that's a good question. My first book, which is entitled "What About Free Will," mm-hmm. uh, I, I deal with that thorny thorny question, and of course, you can't really deal with the question of free will without right. dealing with the question of evil. And and the problem of evil, and so so I kind of um, addressed that issue somewhat briefly in, in my first book, and my editor at, at PNR really liked what I had to say about that. So he encouraged me to write a, a full book on the problem of evil, and I resisted with every ounce of my being. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did not want to tackle that subject because I knew what would be involved. Uh, but but he convinced me, and 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 I actually really enjoyed enjoyed the research and the writing for it. And uh, so yeah, it, it kind of grew out of out of the first book. Now the the question, what about evil? Uh, you know, brings up then the, the issue of the, the technical word would be theodicy or 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 the justification of God. How can you justify that God is and that He is good and that He is just? if evil exists. And you go back to the objections that atheists have raised for many, many years. Of course, the, the, uh, the, the Scottish philosopher David Hume rested much of his denial of God, rested much of his atheism on this very issue, did he not? Yes, yes, that's right. And, and, it, and it goes really to questioning the very character of God, because the, the, the problem of evil, as, as Hume framed it, is kind of framed as a trilemma. So you have the, this notion that, that if God is, uh, you know, omnipotent, all-powerful, and God is also omnibenevolent or all-good, mm-hmm. then surely he would not allow evil to exist in the world that he created uh, with singular goodness. Uh, so, so how could that be? How, how uh, did, you know, and, and typically people don't deny the existence of evil. 
Right. Um, and, and so when you look at the trilemma, you've got God is powerful, God is good, but there's evil. Uh, it seems to place in question either the goodness of God or the power of God or both. And so this is the, the, the typical uh, atheist objection. One of the strongest or per, perhaps most pervasive uh, objections to, um, to the existence of God. And it certainly has maybe one of the strongest emotional appeals um, you know, to, to the average person, even as believers, it causes much, uh, much consternation. Indeed. Yeah. Scott, one of the things that you deal with, because very often, um, evangelicals are, are taught to grapple with this issue, um, by appeals to, to free will. Well, you know, God had to allow evil and he had to allow sin in order to give people a choice because if he didn't give people this sort of libertarian free will, the, the, um, the power not only to, to affirm, but the power to, you know, to, to, to deny, if he didn't give uh, people this sort of free libertarian free will, then we would just be robots and we wouldn't really love him. And that would, you know, I guess that would hurt God's feelings or whatever, but that's, there's all kinds of problems with that view, but but on a quick surface level, um, that satisfies at least for a time some people's grappling with that. How do you you, you go into to, to great detail in not only explaining the free will defense as it's typically known, and and I would say that 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 is typically what evangelicals are equipped with outside of outside of reformed churches. Um, so so just very briefly, you know. How is that typically taught? What is the free will defense? And why is it ultimately inadequate? Now, I know that's a huge question, but, <laughs> but, but kind of briefly walk us through that. Yeah, the idea is uh, free will, and, and this is a particular definition of free will that is, is offered by what are known as free will theists, and that would include classical Arminians, uh, uh, open theists, and even a... a, a, a a brand of free will theism called Molinism that some people may be familiar with, but they all embrace what this notion of libertarian free will, which is the idea that in order for us to really have the ability or the, or the, the, you know, the, the moral responsibility of choosing good, you must have the equal ability to choose evil. Mm -hmm. And, and so this, this is what they mean by freedom of, of, of the will is that you have the equal ability to choose good or evil mm -hmm. or to cho choose a or not a, uh, as the case may be, and that nothing determined, nothing sufficiently determines what choice you would make. And that this really undergirds moral responsibility. And so the idea is that, that um, God must, you know, God must risk, the occurrence of evil in order to preserve this great good of free will. And, uh, and so this, this becomes the most common response that Christians have offered throughout the years. Uh, and, and philosophically, it was, it was a way uh, a well-known Christian philosopher, Alvin Plantinga addressed this problem in the, in the kind of the philosophical world and seemed to be very successful at doing so. Um, yet I think there's serious problems with that particular approach yeah. uh, to addressing the problem. And, and, and interestingly, it was some of the open theists like Clark Pinnock and Greg Boyd 
that uh, that said, well, look, if, if you're going to if you're going to have free will, you can't just um, uh, grant uh, human uh, power to to say yes uh, to good and 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 equally to, to evil as well. And you, and you can't just uh, do away with God's uh, determinative sovereignty. You also have to do away with his foreknowledge, because if God unfailingly knows beforehand what you're going to do, then you're going to have to do that. So you really have to kind of attack uh, many of the, 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 the central categories of, of the biblical doctrine of God if, if, if God is going to coexist with this sort of libertarian human free will. Isn't that true? That's correct. In fact, I think, I think open theists have the most consistent right. view uh, of libertarian free will, because if, if you really accept all the premises of libertarian free will, then you're almost inevitably led to an open theist position, which denies that God has exhaustive foreknowledge uh, of future events. Um, and, and of course, even the way that God's foreknowledge is framed is problematic because it's, it's almost uh, viewing God as though he exists in time. And of right. course, if we hold to the uh, classic uh, theistic view of, of God, as I believe the Bible reveals, God does not exist in time. He knows all things immediately. And, and so it's not as though he is looking down the corridor of time, waiting to figure out what human beings right. or what choices are going to make. But if libertarian free will is true, then God couldn't possibly know our choices, because if we have truly the free ability to choose one choice or another, no one would know what those choices are, even ourselves, until after we made them. Correct. I wonder, Scott, if we sort of step back a second, I wonder if, if the question of the problem of evil has been exacerbated by, let's say, sort of cultural or, or anthropological changes. Uh, the last semester I was working through Charles Taylor's book, A Secular Age, with a group of students of a reading course at Grove. And one of the comments he makes in that is, is how sort of the liturgies of funerals have changed over the years. You go back to the Reformation of the Middle Ages and funeral rites are all preoccupied with the judgment that is to come, mm -hmm. that the focus is on what this person who's died is now facing. And he makes the comment, Taylor makes the comment that as we move to the present day, the folks at funerals have shifted increasingly towards the life of the person. You know, the most dramatic example would be sort of celebrations of life. And I, I, uh, as I was playing around with this in class, it struck me that in, in, in some senses, though the problem of evil has always been discussed and debated, it seems to be a more intense problem today than, say, 500, 1,000, 1,500, 2,000 years ago. And you know, when we go to the Bible and we look at the book of Job, which would seem to me to be the obvious place to go in many ways to, to, to get a biblical take on the problem of evil, the book of Job is it's tricky to interpret because it's, it's poetry. But at the very end, God bursts onto the scene, not to comfort Job, but he comes in the whirlwind, which is in biblical theology, a, a pretty aggressive symbol of judgment, I think. Yeah. I wonder to what extent the problem of evil needs to be addressed, not simply in terms of how do we tie evil in with God, but also the question of how do we shape our own approaches to the world? How do we shape our own piety in a way that, that sets the problem of evil within a, a different kind of 
anthropological context, if you like. It's almost as if when you look back to the Reformation or even the Puritans, John Owen, you know, loses 11 children, never mentions it in his writings. It's almost as if when you go back in, in, in time in, in Christian circles, the problem of evil doesn't seem to be that much of a problem for a lot of people. And yet it's an intense problem for us today. Do you think this is a, a cultural thing that we need to get at as well as a theological problem to which we need to provide an answer? Yeah, I, I think we don't want to be too crass in saying that the problem of evil has never been a problem. I mean, you think of how so, many books in the Bible deal with it almost head on, like Job or Lamentations or, you know, even a book like Ruth or Esther or something yeah. like that. And Boethius um, in the sixth century is, you know, mm -hmm. his uh, consolation of philosophy is sort of pitched right. at the problem right. of evil. Right. I, I think that the, the modern world has exasperated the problem since the Enlightenment, as I think Charles Taylor points out, uh, is because as we have cast God to the side and he's no longer been uh, at the center of cultural ways of thinking about one's worldview and he's been put off to the periphery, we no longer have the kind of resources that I think are necessary for us to even think about the problem, because I, I don't think that people can can really adequately understand evil without bringing in uh, the very central notion of who God is and how he interacts with this world. And so you start to push God off to the periphery, uh, and then suddenly we become dismayed as to how to even handle this problem. And so we have to kind of suppress it. I think, uh, you know, the suppression of even death and things like that uh, in, in modern culture. It's interesting, you know, you, you talk about how how funerals are conducted differently. I mean, just the fact that, that you know, we, we, we rarely do traditional burials anymore and you don't do open casket funerals where you're actually looking at this dead person. Uh, but, you know, you know, you've got cremation. A lot of times you have a memorial service, not really a funeral. And where, like you said, you're, you're talking about someone's life and you're not really focused on the death aspect. And because we're afraid of death, we're, we're, it scares us and we want, to, we want to minimize the impact of it as much as possible. And there's almost a philosophical oddity there in that there's a sense in which if, if God uh, doesn't exist, then evil really isn't a problem. Evil is just a phenomenon in creation, like a leaf falling off a tree is just similar to a person dropping down dead. Uh, the, the idea of evil becomes sort of meaningless without God. And yet, as we push God to the periphery, uh, sort of paradoxically, the problem of evil has become more intense. Yes, yes, it does. Um, and, and I think it's one of, you know, I really think Romans 1 is such a great uh, antidote to this, you know, in terms of understanding this problem, because as we suppress the notion of God, um, you know, as Paul talks about it in Romans 1, you can't do that very long without it coming back up. It's like trying to take a, take a, a beach ball and push it down underneath the water. It's always going to make it, you know, it's going to push back up on you. And I think that's what, I think that's what uh, people are grappling with in the modern world. They can't really escape God and, and, but they don't want to face him. Um, I think it was Julian Barnes in his, uh, in his book on death, a, a secularist, um, uh, 
you know, called Nothing to Be Afraid of. I think at the beginning of his book, this, one of his first lines is, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Uh, it's very interesting because it's like you can't escape this notion. And I think Charles Taylor, again, talks about this in, in the immunization of our modern culture, that there's this, this tension, these cross tensions between the desire to dis, do away with the existence of God, uh, but we can't. Uh, he keeps coming back <laughs> and uh, we can't escape this. And so it, it really causes exasperation when we actually experience serious evil in this world. And, and this is why when people do experience griefs and sorrows and sufferings of all kind, why transcendence is so important and why we have to press into the transcendent. And, and this really kind of brings us, I think, to kind of the, your, your thesis, which is if we're, as we consider the problem of evil, we first have to go to, to who God is and what he is like. And we have to consider the importance of his glory at the center of all things. Um, it, because so many of these other ways of dealing with the problem of evil that, that diminish God in various ways is, is placing um, humanity at the definitional center of the cosmos rather than, than seeing God who's there. You know, what does uh, David Wells write in, in one, of, one of, I think it's God in the Wasteland, where he talks about in evangelicalism, God rests so lightly upon us. Yes. And, um, and, and so we need. Uh, transcendence. We've so immunitized God that uh, that this God who is so much like us can't really help us that much in our suffering. And that's kind of the, the paradox there is that as we've made God like us in order to comfort us, it turns out that God who's just like us can't actually comfort us that much. That's right. That's right. And, and so that's where you really press in on the, the, the essential um, nature of, of, of a biblical doctrine of God, if we're going to deal well with why do bad things happen? We've got to go to what, what God is like. What are some of those essential um, kind of incommunicable attributes of God that, that provide kind of a matrix for our comfort in times of, of sorrow and loss? Well, I think, I think, Typically, Reformed or Calvinistic theologians are going to immediately go to God's sovereignty, but but mm-hmm. and certainly that's true. But I I go back even I think a little bit further to God's transcendence or what R.C. Sproul would would just simply refer to as the holiness of God, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in his classic book uh, of that title. And, and uh, you know, when you think of the holiness of God, p- people tend to think of two poles. You have the kind of righteousness of God, the, the righteous perfection of God, which is on one end of the pole. But on the other end of the pole, you have this notion of the uniqueness of God, of his transcendence, that he is wholly other. Mm-hmm. And, and so this, you know, we have to get away from this domesticated view of God in, in which we bring him down so low, you know, that he is really maybe just a, a slightly better version of the best human being we can imagine. Right. And, and uh, that is just simply not where we go. Now, certainly when we're dealing with the incarnation, we're dealing with something unique, but it's something very paradoxical in that this incredibly awesome, glorious, holy, transcendent God has chosen to condescend himself 
to our humanity through the incarnation. And I think that 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 sort of paradoxical reality is is kind of where the problem of evil begins to to be solved. Um, and so the contrast between um, this massive contrast between the transcendent majesty and glory and holiness of this awesome God, then condescending to our finite existence is where I believe the problem uh, finds its, its greatest solution. Yeah. Well, this has been a, a very interesting discussion on a topic that, uh, well, has been around for thousands of years. And uh, uh, I mean, this is no insult, Scott, to say that your book probably won't bring the discussion to a close, but <laughs> is, I think, a very significant contribution to that discussion and a remarkably helpful book for pastors because you know, the problem of evil, the problem of suffering, the problem of death, they're all aspects of life in this fallen world, and they're not going anywhere this side of the eschaton. And as human beings, we, we're going to feel the pinch uh, in our own lives on, on these issues. And so it's important that pastors are well briefed and able both to, to empathize with those who are struggling and asking serious questions about this, but also able to point their people to serious and thoughtful biblical answers to the questions. And I think your book uh, not only is it profound, but it's also very readable. And with the study questions, yeah. with the glossary, it's it's a remarkable achievement. So thank you very much, Scott, for mm -hmm. this gift to, to the church of today. And also, let's say thank you to those of you who are listening. If you would like the opportunity of winning a copy of Scott's book, What About Evil? A Defense of God's Sovereign Glory, uh, please go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, where you can enter for a chance to receive a copy. Uh, if you don't win a copy, I would strongly urge you to order uh, the book from Amazon or whatever your local Christian book supplier might be. It's published by Presbyterian Reformed, and it is a worthwhile addition to any pastor's or thoughtful layperson's bookshelf. Uh, all that remains for me now at this point is to thank you for listening and to say we look forward to being with you next time. You made a fool of me the broken dreams you Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Man, I, I'm from Texas, and I, I have been to Kerrville, Scott. When I was a kid um, living in Houston in the early 70s, we were members of West University Baptist Church in Houston, and our church would do a, a family trip to Kerrville to a campground that was out there every year. Used to uh, be terrified of scorpions. Uh, we'd, yeah. see those, we'd see those suckers everywhere.
Yeah, we've just, we've been here just for a year now. So okay. yeah, we love it. It's a great, great place. Yeah. Well, and, and it's Texas and you guys are going to be seceding soon anyway, right? That's right. That's right. So, <laughs> I might come, I might come back for that. Carl wouldn't understand that. Carl's still a monarchist. And so. Hey, I've not seen much in recent American politics to have disabused me of that, to be honest. Uh, whatever else she is, the queen is not an embarrassment. That's all. <laughs> the, the stars at night are big and bright, deep That's in the right. heart of Texas. There you go. Learn it, love it, live it, Carl Truman. <laughs> oh, the cultural myopia is, is impressive. That's what I'll say. <laughs> the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals is pleased to present Delighting in Our Triune God, the 2021 Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. Live and in person March 12th through the 14th in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and online from Philadelphia beginning April 30th. The Trinity is quintessential Christian doctrine, celebrating the biblical truth of one God in three persons, yet few believers today appreciate the doctrine's vital importance. Elevating the Trinity at this year's conference will be David Garner, Michael Barrett, Todd Rester, and Richard Phillips, with additional Philadelphia content from Robert Letham and others. Delighting in our triune God, the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. Registration for the Grand Rapids event is open now. Log on reformedevents.org for more. That's reformedevents.org.